myself out. I am afraid of I'm terrified and paralyzed by I am deathly afraid of Welcome to the Sum of All Fears podcast with your host, me, Ryan Perio. Hello and welcome to the Sum of All Fears podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Perio. This week, my guest is fellow podcaster and comedian Wally Hippolito. Wally lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and is a comedian who is making his return to the stage here recently, as well as his own podcast called Off the Stoop, where he just kind of talks about any and everything going on. It's kind of a stream of conscious podcast, which may be going under some renovations as we speak. He just recorded his 50th episode when we did this interview. In this interview... We talk about living in the San Francisco Bay Area, getting back into comedy, basketball, and then we get into his fear of mediocrity, which is a very fascinating fear for me. So let's get into the interview right now with Wally Hippolito. All right, my guest this week is podcaster from the Off the Stoop podcast, Wally Hippolito. Wally, how you doing today? Good, good, Ryan. Thanks for having me on, man. It uh, it took a little while, but we're here now. Yeah, I, we can always take a break for good things. Like I said, we can always reschedule when when good things are on the way. I totally get that. I've had a couple of instances where I all of a sudden like. Because I'm a comic on my, in my spare time, and there have been times where I'm scheduled to do a podcast, and all of a sudden my phone rings, and it's one of the clubs saying, hey, we need you to come out tonight. And so I've got to say, oh, you know, sorry. Duty calls. Yeah. Duty calls, man. You got to answer it. Mm-hmm. And as we were talking here before we started, you are planning on making your grand re-entrance into stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah man i mean like i like we were talking about it's been about 12 years since i went went up on stage and you know throughout this pandemic it's kind of just given me time to think about what i really wanted to do and who i really wanted to be and it's not this pencil pushing dude in a fucking in a in an office taking shit from some cuck who Mm-hmm. Who who has nothing else better to do with his life, basically. And I just I, I can't be under that man anymore, under those people. So and I, I need to talk shit like I need to talk shit. I need to be around people who talk shit and understand that PC culture doesn't always have to be around us. <laughs> okay. Well, then it sounds like stand up is the career path for you. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> you 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 seem to be gravitating to the right field of expertise. So what's so you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, in that area, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right in the city. Have you scouted any of the open mics in town? Have you kind of kind of picked which spot you want to try to make your your re-entrance into out in San Fran? I haven't yet. And um, so I'm on a, I'm in a couple of groups on Facebook. And so the city and the Bay Area is just starting to open up lightly, but they're barely letting in maybe like half capacity. So right now, what I'm doing is trying to go to like, you know, these comedy writing workshops or like practice open mics where they have a bunch of them in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much what I've been doing and doing a lot of writing while I'm at it, too. So I haven't thought about where I'm going to go try to make my reentry into the world. OK. Have you gone to any comedy shows? I'm very curious to how like a Bay Area audience may be different. Because I can tell you in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there is, it is highly conservative. And so sometimes you can poke fun at the left and get a huge response. Whereas I think if you were over in in what I like to call the, the capital of the left, the left wing, <laughs> and making those jokes, I would just, you know, it's got to be such a, it's got to be such a different environment. Like for me, because I'm in Dallas, Texas, even though we're fairly liberal city there's still a lot of conservative oil money in yeah. here. And so you'll get that and you'll get the rich white Caucasian conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have been to a couple shows and I knew, I know we talked a little bit before this, my plan was to actually move to Brooklyn this year, which uh, was supposed to be in May. And I wanted to do that because you're exactly right. Like 
the San Francisco Bay Area, it's a great place. It's a great liberal place. You know, you can do or be whatever you want. But trying to do comedy here is so difficult because everybody is literally on edge about everything all the time. So, you know, as a comic, you do, you know, you have boundaries, but you also have to not have boundaries. Someone, I mean, someone who's been in the game like you knows that for sure. But you have to, the audience has to let be able to let you to push that boundary just like a little bit over the line. But what I've seen from comics around here, and this, this is no shit at them at all. It's more at the crowd than anything. It's they don't allow you to go over that line. So they've come in with this kind of routine already where they know, OK, we're, we're going to have to go political. It's going to have to be against the right. We can't say anything about, you know, you can't make any homosexual jokes. You can't do there. There are a lot of rules and. The gatekeepers, from what I've seen, are really strict to those rules because at the end of the day, it's a it's about making money, right, for yeah. them. They absolutely, and as somebody, you know, that's something. Like I said, as a comic, you have to learn. Is there certain rules in certain cities, and I'm sure there are gay jokes that can be made, but it can't be any. I would say that are demeaning. I would say they come across that can, yeah. can come across as poking fun. You can poke fun, but you can't make fun. Is what I like to call it. That's a great way of putting it, actually. And that that makes a lot of sense. But for me, at least at least the way I grew up is this. I grew up in this in San Francisco. So like, I mean, I have gay uncles. My mm-hmm. my godfather's gay. And like, I have no animosity towards the gay community. Mm-hmm. It's just that the thing is, you guys are people also and you just need to get roasted. Yeah. And and I think it's I think it's more for me, at least it's more the intention than it is what they're saying. Yeah. But with Bay Area comedy and, you know, how political, politically active this area is, they don't let you say it. They just kind of bite the they bite the headline right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that I ha- I grew up with it and I'd, my father's gay. And so I've I've grown up with it. And so, again, it's it. I since I've been exposed to it, it doesn't it doesn't register for me as something that's wrong or however, however. Dude, exactly. It's just it's just always been in existence for me, and I don't I don't understand the, and I get their side of it as to being a little sensitive because they have been made fun of mm-hmm. for the longest time. Like I just like I just watched Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. You know, it was on Showtime or something late at night. I just got home late and I was snacking before I passed out, and they say the f word against gay people. I'm not going to say it on here yeah. but, but they, <laughs> they they just say it cavalierly and like that was 1991 and it was you know that was a PG-13 movie basically and so I get that there's always been the underwriting that there's such a there's such a rush right now to actually explore like the gay the gay life like you look at the mm-hmm. HBO series is like what's the one that they had with uh, the gay I can't remember what it was called with but it was they have a couple where exploring homosexual and lesbian couples and things like that. Um, it's a new one in they had they had a lesbian one and then they had they had a gay to a gay guy one once that was like all gay guy cast and I can't remember what it was called. Shit. But it's again, you know, used for you know, twenty years ago. I don't know how old you are. I'm forty four. But twenty I'm years 30. Yeah. So tw- like you know, when you were a kid the gay person was the comic relief in every, in every show. Like, yeah. You know, the gay people were just the wild flamboyant. And I was like, that's not everybody. And so it's, yeah, there's been this, like, I would say almost a renaissance of, I guess, you know, just portrayal of what a real authentic, you know, what really happens that it's not this, totally different lifestyle or anything to be afraid of these people have the same struggles you have for 95 percent of their life but they have the extra five percent of you criticizing and judging them and trying to apparently you know make them feel like they're less than a person yeah man and that's why i say you kind of like have with comedy and yeah i think particularly with comedy and not a much not much with anything else you have to like really think about the intent of what they're trying to say. And I just like, I, 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 you bring up the, you bring up Will and Grace. And I was thinking of uh, how I met your mother with Mm -hmm. um, Neil Patrick Harris. Like he's an openly gay man, but he was the comedic relief as a, as a 
overly masculine straight man who is a womanizer and and everything that has i mean everything that's considered toxic masculinity and masculinity masculinity in today's world and i just i just i love it because it allows you to play and allows you to just be free because like you said they're just people at the end of the day and i get that there are these stereotypes but in this day and age in 2021 with streaming service and mm-hmm. with streaming services and all these avenues where you can learn and read and see what you know someone who's gay or someone who's whatever is like we should be able to like know that like they're just people too they put on their pants maybe they don't put on their pants maybe they put on a fucking skirt and they're just regular people like you and me and yeah like you said they they just had that 5% where we judge them because they don't fit our criteria yeah and and somewhere along the line that's been portrayed as wrong and that's the whole thing is that for the longest time it's been it's been a consider it's considered taboo or not acceptable and so i definitely san francisco is definitely a city i definitely want to try and hit when i do travel just because it does it has so much to, i mean there's just so much there like the only thing that would keep me from moving there is the cost of living because it's oh, shit. It's super. Don't fun. don't even do it, dude. <laughs> don't even fucking do it. Unless you unless you have that Texas oil money, or mm-hmm. you feel like living in a box for a couple years, then yeah. by all means, please. Yeah, it, they have some really cool parks, though. I've I know some of my friends got married, and some of y'all like the parks y'all have there with like the Sierra Redwoods and stuff like that. True, but is it worth it when you live in a $2,500 studio in a, in like the worst neighborhood? Wow. <laughs> no, Is that park really worth it? Nope. That's why I travel. That's why I hate breakfast <laughs> with travel. Cause I've done my research. I was like, Oh, this is, you know, it's super nice. Well, the cost of nice is that. Dude, no. <laughs> 2,500 for a studio. That, that's the cost. Like I'm lucky that I live I, you know, I live on my own and I live kind of in the outskirts of the city now and I pay about a thousand dollars a month, but that's because I own my own place and not everybody gets to be that lucky and like, you know, save up and do things that way. But here it's a struggle, man. Like it's not even just pre during the pandemic that everyone's struggling. It's like pre pan. We had the pre pan. We had pandemic before the pandemic happened. Like it's been seven years of that shit. And, you know, the pandemic was just, oh, fuck, now we got to all stay home. It's like, God damn it. Okay. We can't even at least enjoy the city that we're getting ran out of. Mm-hmm. So, so it's rent so high. Like, would it be like you have to move back home with your parents into their studio at some point? Like you, <laughs> you would all have to live in one studio apartment. Dude, I mean, some people don't even, some people don't even make, make it an option to move out in the first place. You just stay in that studio and maybe you can get the closet, sneak in your girlfriend when your parents are asleep, Mm -hmm. get a couple hits in, and then, you know, just make sure you leave before the four o'clock bell rings. Yeah, y'all also have fog, like the fog horns and stuff like that that go off. Dude, it's... Now that I'm really thinking about it, like it's it's really a good thing that I'm thinking about leaving the Bay Area. You're just you're just hitting all points right now, Ryan. And <laughs> I like it, but at the same time, I don't like it. <laughs> well, it definitely plays into what you said your your fear was. So I mean, it it I you're taking it. You know, you like to t- you're taking big steps because your fear. Go ahead and tell the listeners what your fear is. What is that? mediocrity that's what we were that's the and i was like that you were just leading in perfectly like i can't stay here because i'll just be in the middle of just making it here just living you know in this thousand dollar box yeah and um no i'm i'm truly scared of mediocrity and i don't mean mediocre as in you know you don't have talent you can't do this you can't do that um i'm scared of mediocrity as in you're not willing to do it, you know? Um, and I think that's, I think that's mediocre. Not having talent, that's, that's just not having talent. Not being, not having found yourself, not, that's it. But not trying, I think that's extremely mediocre, especially in the last year when people have really been able to kind of evaluate their lives mm-hmm. for the most part and really like think to themselves, hey, the government's fucking me right now. 
So I got to think and do something to either change it up, go a different way with my life, or I'm going to stay here and just suffer and, you know, kind of hate the world. Yeah. And that's such a great point. Like I didn't even think about like how much self-reflection that you can do by having, you know, by being, I've kind of done some of that. Like my living space has gotten way better. Like, cause when I was working and just doing comedy all the time, like I didn't go home, come home till like three in the morning. So I'd mm-hmm. leave here at 10 and not come home till, you know, one or two, then go to bed at three. And so now that I've been home so much, like I've gotten new furniture, I've gotten a new <laughs> couple new rugs and just kind of made it livable. Cause it's, when you're sitting somewhere, you realize how, I guess, off your, you know, your stuff really is. Like, oh, I have, I really don't have as much space as I really think I do. <laughs> like, I have stuff stacked on stools and, you know, bars. I've recently moved, I work from home, so I definitely have moved okay. my work computer out to the living room during the tournament because I'm a sports fan. So I'm like, I want to, I want to. Nice. Because it was in my bedroom and I'm like, I don't want to walk around. And then have to walk back when someone chats in. Are you a Texas guy? Um, I am not a Texas guy. I okay. I grew. My grandfather was a big Notre Dame fan, so college football wise, that is my college football team is the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Mm-hmm. And basketball. What about for hoops? Basket. It's North Carolina is number one. Then U of H. Ooh, that's a tough year for you guys. <laughs> it's hard when you have when you're basing your coaching on you're just putting it all in your coaching and so yeah if you have all the time of the world these students coaching staffs like the ones at duke and north carolina are going to dominate because they can just they can maximize this guy's one year at college and just coach him coach him coach him and without without co with covid restrictions guess what you don't get that you don't get that one-on-one time you don't get that time in the gym and so there's no yeah. co- there's no teamwork or cohesion because I don't know if maybe I don't mean how many hours they practice, but I would think after four or five hours a day of running the same plays over and over, you're gonna know where everybody's gonna be. Yeah, yeah. And I, don't well, I I mean I don't pertain to just this year. When did North Carolina win it all in eighteen? Seventeen. I think it was seven. Yeah, I think it was seventeen versus Villan- versus Villanova, right? Those well, last was, second shots. That's sixteen. Villanova won. That, so who did you guys beat in 18? Gonzaga. Gonz- okay, Gonzaga. I think, well, I follow college basketball pretty frequently, and I'm not trying to steer off too much into the convo, but, dude, Roy Williams, his recruiting process, or his recruits have been fucking terrible the last couple of years. I don't know if you're, like, super into high school max preps type shit or, like, go on Instagram a lot, but his recruiting classes have been garbage. So, like... You know, for for the standard of North Carolina, it's terrible. Of course, if you went to fucking Iona or somewhere else, like you'd be the shit. Like you'd be guaranteed. But for Roy Williams and that program, his recruiting hasn't been that great lately. Well, I'm just wondering if he just doesn't if if he just needs to up his basketball. I would say like to change his coaching coaching philosophy because I would I'll say this: it hasn't changed. It's it's big guys inside rebounding and putting up. You turn around jumpers and small guys at the perimeter shooting. And so I feel like maybe that maybe Roy Williams needs to maybe get a couple of young assistants and just try to expand his knowledge base. Cause I feel like he's in a rut coaching wise and that, that boils down in recruiting is he's got these, you know, low post bangers that, and you know, against smaller competition, yeah, they're just going to, you know, when they miss, they're just going to rebound and go back up. Mm-hmm. But that the basketball itself is changing. And I'm wondering if he needs to maybe change his philosophy and to get more athletic bigs or stretch, you know, stretch fours. Like the one stretch five that they had put himself in the transfer portal, I think. But he didn't look, he didn't look like he was very aware of where he was supposed to be in the games he did play. I haven't watched too many, but who, who, who is it you're talking about? His name was like, he's a white, I can't remember his name. He's like Fuller or Holler, but he was like, he, oh, come on, come on, Ryan. Of course he's a white guy. But he's of course a, he's a white big man in North Carolina. Yeah, but he, but he's a, <laughs> he was, they were portraying him to be a stretch five. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Mm. 
to be able to have a five that can shoot that they haven't had that since, you know, their championship. But again, you you know, they've never really recruited an NBA caliber player. I would think the last really good NBA caliber player was uh, Antoine. Harrison Barnes. Yeah, Harrison Barnes. And, yeah, I mean, I don't want to say Danny Green was a really good NBA player, but he is an NBA player. Yeah, he's won rings. He's he's found a niche, but again, like I said, when you think of franchise playing, you know, franchise first uh, round draft yeah. picks, you don't really look at North Carolina since you know Harrison Barnes, Antoine Jameson, Jerry Stackhouse. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so that I think that just boils into the philosophy he's always had because you can go back to all his championships and there's really nobody on those teams that really stands out, but they play really good cohesive basketball as the bigs are just big enough to body out and go back up with the ball. But there's nothing really that scares you. Yeah. And, and I think that like lends to your point about all those players that we had mentioned, all those guys we were talking about, they're all forwards. They're all big guys who can dribble the ball and, and they can shoot from the perimeter. And from what I noticed in the last couple of years, yeah, Roy Williams hasn't really had that forward. He's just had that. He He's basically kind of tried to cre- recreate that Tyler Hansborough, Ty Lawson team, mm-hmm. it looks like, for like the last two or three years. Yeah. And, you know, for his level, that was cool, like you said, in 2008, 2009. But like you said, the, the game is evolving and it's evolving a lot slower in college, but it is moving yeah. in, a, in, in a different direction. The three is becoming the the end thing. It's, it's more about the three. So it's getting guys that can drain the outside three, which they have one in Kermit Johnson. If he stays, then that dude, that dude has a pure, one of the purest strokes I've seen out of a shooter. If he's a three and D, he's not, he's, he's not staying. I don't know if he's a three and D. He's he can shoot the lights out though. I mean his his stroke is pure. He's gonna be he's gonna be a Glenn Rice or Del Curry type shooter. Just pure wow. fluid. Just just textbook. You put a lot of pressure on him just now. Del Curry or Glenn Rice? That's big dog. That's mm-hmm. yeah, big dog. That's that's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just thinking shooting wise. Like I said, just he's uh, he's just got the pure stroke. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I mean, like like we were saying that, and to talk about this episode, go back to the subject at hand, um, Roy Williams has been mediocre. Mm-hmm. just And we don't like mediocrity, mediocrity in North Carolina or mm-hmm. in my little studio apartment. So what, when you say mediocrity, so what did, where did your first experience with what media, like the, the feeling of mediocrity? Is it just your day job, just work doing day job work i think my first my first like encounter media mediocrity it had to be like in high school you know i i grew up playing oh no 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 you know what it had to be it had to have been in college so upon graduation um i was supposed to actually go play basketball in the philippines and i had torn my knee broke my ankle all in a span of like a year and a half and uh my and i had to relearn how to walk not just like like baby steps i don't think i started walking until like eight or nine months and then during that time i'm only like five six and i was like 150 at the time and i gained like 40 pounds so you can imagine how that kind of looked and that was the first time i really thought to myself like oh shit you haven't done anything in months like you look like a sack of shit right now you are mediocre and that kind of just played into my head mentally to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't live in the Bay for a while. So I actually moved to Hawaii for like a year and a half just to be to be out on the island to kind of like walk and bike and just not know anyone and experience some new shit. And, you know, during that time, I became a chef. And before you knew it, four or five, six months goes by and I'm, I'm I look like a fucking crackhead. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, I mean, ever since then, Ever since that experience of like not being able to walk, I just thought to myself, like, you you just you can't be mediocre, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, mediocre. It just scares the shit out of me, honestly. And like, mm-hmm. honestly, the I'm not saying that I'm perfect or that I'm the shit. Otherwise, I would probably be on like on on the grand stage as an actor or something. But, you know, every day I'm working towards 
being less mediocre. <laughs> yeah. So you were a chef. So so what kind of did you specify in Filipino cooking at all? Or? Well, I do cook Filipino food for like family and friends and mm-hmm. uh, and you know my loved ones. Um, but in Hawaii, I special well, I worked for this guy named Roy, and he's like the godfather of cuisine in Hawaii. So he he created modern Hawaiian food. He modernized Hawaiian food. So it would be like a loco moco with like farm-raised eggs and like grass-fed beef, you know, and all that shit. Mm-hmm. But it was still loco moco at the end of the day. But what he taught me was, you know, not settling for terrible ingredients. He's like, and because that's a form of mediocrity and you're not doing anyone a, a service by, by, uh, by doing that, by trying to take shortcuts because that just a shortcut leads to another way towards mediocrity. So he also told me to play the long game, like be patient and try to instill these things in me. Like he, he was kind of like a father to me, to be honest. He tried, he kept trying to son me, but we kept, we, we always fought, but I always took his lessons uh, into account at least. Well, but I would say that's a paternal role. Like I said, that kind of plays a fatherly, like you're never going to agree totally with your dad. There's, there's always going to be some friction because you're st- you even though you want to you want to impress him, you you still have to walk your own path. He can't he can't make you walk the same path he did. And yeah, he, yeah, and he exactly. wouldn't want you to. He, he that's probably his big fear is that you, he doesn't want you to have this. He wants you to have a, that path a little easier to walk than the one he had to walk. And if you have kids, you probably will want the same as you want their path to be even easier than the one you had. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, Jay Z said this in a line, in uh, in his in Watch the Throne. I don't know if you're what kind of music you listen to, but um, he he said this in a line. He said, "It took me 26 years to find my path. My only job is to cut the time in half." And he was talking about his future son or daughter that he may have, and it's like that's so profound because that. I mean, I don't have any kids or anything, especially up in this fucking box, but. Yeah, you know, that when I do eventually have kids, like I I want to make it as easy for them as possible, but I also don't want to make it too easy for them because there's an, also another saying that like I don't want them to be the son of a great man. Okay. Because you know, those like you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah. Oh yeah, I've watched. <laughs> like, dude, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say Robert Baratheon was a great man, but I mean, um what the hell was this kid's name? Joffrey was a shithead. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by son of a great man. Yeah, but also it wasn't Baratheon's kid. So the True, 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 true. <laughs> she it was just sold as that after I guess the Lannister thing happened. Which was, after they did some work. Yeah, that's so uncomfortable. That I, I swear <laughs> sometimes HBO just puts shows on put scenes in shows just to to create a reaction. Like, okay. You're really, you're really, you're really pushing the boundaries of what. I'm sure it did happen, but for you to to put it in episode one, <laughs> it's kind of like, well, but that hooked you in, right? Yeah. In a disgusting way, because you got to see, you got to see what's up with these freaks, because they're a hot couple, dude. Like, that's a hot fucking couple right there. <laughs> It, it 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 definitely it definitely changed my opinion of Cersei Lannister fairly quickly. <laughs> but yeah, that I could I it, it seems like you've you've been kind of predisposed to not settle. So that's such a that's such an interesting thing is that all these paths in your life that you've kind of made you've you've kind of accepted not settling and and shook things up. Like you moved to Hawaii, you. You've, you know, you've trained your chef as one of the, you know, the fathers of modern Hawaiian cuisine, or I guess they call it island cuisine. I can't remember. And I'm pretty sure he's been on like Top Chef or something at this point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so that it's such an interesting thing too to find. So what is cooking your passion or what are you passionate about for yourself that that if you were if you were going to change the game in one thing, what is it going to be? Honestly, dude, what I'm doing now, podcasting and comedy. Okay. Um, 
so I actually graduated from school with a degree in journalism and I was going to be a sports, I was going to try and be a sports journalist. And I just have, you know, people have told me this and I kind of, I'm starting to kind of see it in myself again. Like I just kind of have this natural flow of like talking to people. And I, and you know what, most of all, I just fucking love talking to people. Like I love having a good time, having good conversations, whether we go deep, or we talk like shitheads. Like I, I love having conversation with people and getting to know people. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's the thing I love the most. And then like entertaining people is the, like, I fucking love entertaining people. Yeah. And again, so in your eyes, a mediocre product would be something that you, when you watch the video, it, for me, comedy wise, my, I guess my seal of excellence is, can I watch the video of this comedy set? Can I, because mm. I don't know if you've, when you start comedy, you, you'll, to study, sometimes you'll listen to your audio or worse, you'll watch your video and it's painful. It's painful to watch sometimes because you have, it's hard for you behind your two eyes to comprehend what other people <laughs> see because in your mind, you can't see you. And so you think that, oh, I'm kill you know, I'm. I'm up here just oh, destroying, okay. you know, I'm moving around, <laughs> I'm I'm super loose, I'm killing it, you know, I'm so I'm so into the moment. And then you'll watch the video and you'll be rigid and nervous and kind of look at you and it, it'll blow your mind at the difference of what you're seeing yourself on video but to what you were feeling on stage and it's it's so hard to watch sometimes cuz it's like, ah, oh, I've to- I've done this it's it's like watching yourself, you know, sing or anything like that. It's, it's a process. Yeah. And <laughs> that's funny that you bring that up, man. And, you know, I, I'm honestly ready for that mm-hmm. because it gives me the, it, it's not in a sense of, it's not a sense of pride or anything that like, oh, I'm going to fucking kill it every night. But, you know, listen, it, once I am able to go up on stage, you know, do the recordings and listen to myself, it's just the fact that I got up there in the first place, you know? I think, especially in today's world, you're a little older than I am, but like, you know, millennial generation and Gen Z, they're so used to, they're so used to having it their way immediately. And everything has to be perfected and everything has to be perfect where if it's not, they're not going to try. See, I'm a little bit of the older millennial, so I'm 30 years old. Mm-hmm. So I know what it's like to be like, I know what it's like to not get everything I want at one time. Like I know what it's like to be shit at something. Like I know what it's like to dribble a basketball at six, seven years old, be trash. And then you see yourself getting better a little bit every day. But you know, to lead, to stay with this basketball example real quick in this day and age, like there are thousands of trainers on Instagram that you can hit up like, and you could go to a park or you can go to a gym and, you know, get those skills up. And I'm, I'm not scared of the grind. Like I know I made look like shit my first couple times back up, but I, that's what it takes. Yeah. And I, I, you said it best when you were talking about your chef uh, or your, your pseudo father, when he said, you got to play the long game. And that's, yeah. that's what comedy is going to be is it's the long game and it's enjoy the work you do in it because at the end of the day, that's going to be, you know, the, the thing you're, you're, you're exposed to the most. It's, there's very few, you, you'll have your few moments of bliss, but that first time on stage is what I feel like I always chase is that, that high of that first time just having no filter no net just going up there and completely conquering this fear for three to four minutes i was up to one in the morning just you know living off of that high i'm now chasing it because now i'm a little bit more (laughs) i'm a little bit more enlightened about it and so every time i go up i'm a little more enlightened but because of my enlightenment i the, the sheer thrill of it is isn't as high as it was the first time. It's still there. Like mm-hmm. I still enjoy it, but it's not the it's not the I'm sitting in my bed at one in the morning, like, oh my God, that was the greatest set of my life. You know, I've as I thought <laughs> you you feel you don't feel that same amount. It doesn't ever go back up to that first level. So like your first time 
emotionally wise is the highest you'll ever be. And mm-hmm. for a while it'll be lower because now you'll have expectations. Okay, well, it felt like good this time. What, you know, then maybe, you know, you're not, you're more aware of what's happening and, oh, this isn't going as well as I, I, I thought it was. I don't remember it being this bad or, you know, I don't remember, I don't remember people, I remember people, I don't remember people laughed or not my first set. I just remember being up there and it's just the adrenaline of, being in the public eye being the lead dog if you will in a pack of people because it's it's the biggest fear public speaking is the biggest fear on on planet earth and so to get off stage knowing you did that you're trembling in some instances just like the power you know just power you had (laughs) yeah yeah i um dude i mean i'm 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 fine with chasing the high because every, you know I don't know if you know about chef life too often we're chasing we're on I was so I was a sous chef when I came back to the bay and I had oh man if you met me like maybe 4 or 5 years ago my balls were gigantic huge whale sized nutsack and that's because like you know that it's along with the drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, it's like you, you kind of live like a rock star. Oh yeah. And you, and I was just, like you said, with comedy as a chef, you kind of chase that high and chase that narcissistic level of yourself where you're just basically mind jerking yourself off 24 seven. So, so like maybe about three, four years, two, three, four years ago, I was exactly on that. So are you, what made you get out of chefing? No, I, um, so my leg, my, so I, my bad leg, it just started to creep up. And, you know, like I said, the life's the, like being a chef is not a job. It's okay. a life. Yeah. Like it's a complete lifestyle. Like you're 12 hours. You're a lot like comics. You're out at two or three in the morning. What are you going to do? Like go out with your coworkers, mm-hmm. get drunk wake up at nine or 10 in the morning, go into work and prep and then do it all over again. So eventually five or like four, three, four, five years, my body just started to decay. And I just said, you know what? I I can't do this anymore. I got to, I got to quit. Yeah. I was going to say, you're definitely on your feet a lot. And for people that haven't been in a commercial kitchen, your floors are usually pretty wet and Mm -hmm. you're, you're carrying a lot of either heavy liquid or semi-solid that can, that in Lexans and things that can, can and will slip or cause you to slip. And so it's definitely a lot on your joints and it can, it can, it can take a toll, especially again with you with the pre-existing condition from basketball to, to have to carry in, you know, prep work back to the cooler, you know, fill a 60 gallon Lexan with, mm. and, you know, just having to hold it and may and try to balance it and try to get it on the rack, wrap your racks. Yeah. And, and then people don't people don't take into account like the mental stress that it takes. You know, you're you're essentially moving like a crackhead the entire time. You're you're um and you have to think like one too. You gotta you gotta see, you gotta make sure that dish is prepared right, you gotta make sure those sauces are good, and then you have to time it and tell the other guy, like, hey, I'm 20 seconds out, you better have my salad or whatever dish mm-hmm. accompanies it. And it just yeah. It takes a toll on every sense of your being. And it's just, I miss it. I loved it, but it's just not for me anymore. Yeah. And I I did some of it. Like I used to work at a place called Eatsies and here in Dallas, Fort Worth, or it was food to go, which makes mm-hmm. makes the Lexan thing even more is because you just did it. <laughs> basically, you were doing prep work and you would get it to where all you needed to do was fire it is basically the concept of Eatsies is that because here we don't have public transportation. Uh-huh. It's a kind of a myth, but we have we have a rail system. We have buses, but it's kind of a myth. A lot of people still drive, so it's like well, why don't we make shit you know ev- elevated to go, and so everything is like chef crafted. All you need to do is fire it in the oven for fifteen or twenty minutes, and you've got basically oh, okay. like a chef just prepared you a fantastic meal in your kitchen. Got it. Got it. So it's like a. Uh... It's like a HelloFresh, but yeah. already kind of done for you. That's tight, man. It was a lot. It was a 24-hour operation. So we had chefs in the building at all hours. So as soon as, 
It's because we had sushi too. So as soon as prep work was done for the main courses, the Italian, the soups, the salads, the sandwiches, then the sushi chefs would come in from 10 p.m. and work till 6 a.m. And they would bang out the sushi for the day. Shit. What, were you banging out any sushi or was what, never, what was your part? I just did the prep work for most of the sides and stuff like that. Chicken breast on the on the griddle and stuff like that. But it literally, when you clocked out, they took note of what time you clocked out. And then the legal thing is I think you have they have to wait eight hours so they can call you in early. And so they would make a note of when you what clocked out fuck? so they know how they knew exactly when to call you in, especially like during Thanksgiving and things like that when we had catering and stuff like that. I mean, it had it was everything under one roof. We had a bakery, we had the kitchen, we had a sandwich shop, we had a grill, hot grill section, coffee bar, deli. Dude, how how fucking big was this place? Not that big. It's I would say it is about as big as your black eyed pea or Bennigan's or all these restaurants have gone under, but basically regular restaurant size. It's like in the middle was the chef case of the prepackaged stuff that you could buy on a la carte. Mm-hmm. And so you could get burritos, chicken tenders, couscous, all of that from the middle. But there was a bakery to the right with a conveyor belt oven. And on the other side was the kitchen with the big kettles and griddles that you could do in convection oven. So you had your line there, and then you had your line prep for where they were chopping and stuff and getting stuff ready for the chef case. Then just to the right, and so you would just cross a little alleyway before you went out to the chef case. There was the grill, so you could walk over to the grill, fire stuff on the charcoal grill, so they would have things going on the grill. We had homemade focaccia. <laughs> we had a pizza oven, basically, that we could bake in. Then, and rotisserie chickens were the bomb. Then over past that, there's a little area for the customers to walk. There's a coffee bar and where they could eat to go food here. So like they wanted to fire it up at the in the back. They could do that and eat and either that or in the front patio. Then next to that was the sandwich and salads, sandwich salad station where they could. One line was for salads. The other line was for sandwiches and they would just bead you through. Then the deli was right next to them. So in case sandwich shop or did you know salads needed chop right for the deli and then bro uh-huh they had produce we had everything it was, it was cool if you ever <laughs> if you ever come to dallas hit me up i'll take you to one and you can scope it out it was really cool dude i'm down bro like texas you guys are doing it fucking right right now like everything that you mentioned all that food in one place bro if I want a sandwich, I got to go like four miles. If I want pizza, I got to go back the other way for two. People don't move to fucking California. And that's not just because I live here right now. If you're in Texas, stay your ass there. You guys are doing it. You guys are doing it way correctly. Well, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's cool. It was cool. When I first started there, it was literally, I, the, I did that fresh out of high school. So my uncle was a chef. So I had all this background in, in chefing. At the, at the house I was living at because my mom and my uncle lived together because my family, my dad, my mom's side of the family kind of, after my grandfather died, kind of pulled together. And mm-hmm. so we all were under one roof and he was a chef. And so he would kind of give me pointers and stuff like that. And we went, you know, I took a chef school and stuff like that while I was working there. So I could literally walk from my chef school to work. And so I would park at work, go walk to chef school, come back bang it out, then go home, wake up again. And you're right, it's like the life of a crackhead because as soon as that phone rings and they need you, gotta go. You Yeah. They don't they don't they don't play. They don't give you like, okay, we'll you we'll let you go this time. Oh it was no, okay, we'll find someone who does. And that's that's yeah. that's the one thing about she- the stress part of chefing is is they can find somebody that will do it without that chefing degree, they'll find somebody that'll do it for seven dollars an hour. And that was that was the hard part for me, too, is that they can they can work you that way. And even with, you know, without with or without the chef degree, but you're just so replaceable. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like once you get as as a cook, like once you get a routine down, once you get the menu down, it's not that fucking complicated unless you're working at a Michelin two or three star restaurant like Mm -hmm. 
Do you know how to grill some chicken? Do you know how to slather butter on a piece of bread before you put it on the griddle? Like once you get that down, anybody can do it. And, you know, whether you have, like you said, whether you have the degree or not, it doesn't matter. Like, are you going to come to work? And if not, if you don't come to work today, don't think, don't think for a second that you have a job tomorrow. Yeah. Which is fucking terrifying. Yeah. And that's one thing I I ended up in tech support after that because I was very good with computers. (laughs) It just, it was, and it made more money. I was making seven to $8 and with tech support, I literally walked in the door with no experience. It was nine to $10 an hour. And I was, it was like sold. I'm like, I'm like, why would, why am I working as a chef when I can make nine to $10 an hour doing tech support? And then upwards from there, it went just went upwards from there and now I'm comfortably I'd say making a comfortable living doing it and then do comedy for extra income. So how'd you, uh, so how did you start in comedy? Well, similar to you, it's, it's similar to your story. I would say that I was a, from tech support, I graduated to telephone company in 2000 so in 1990 98 99 i lost my job i lost a lot of stuff there and i started doing tech support again when i found a job it took me there was literally a three-month period where me and my roommate at the time could not find a job to save our lives Mm -hmm. and we literally all we did was apply for jobs and played mario kart 64 all day (laughs) that is all we did for like a month and a month and had like basically Carl Budig, I don't know if you know what Carl Budig meat is. It is the, it is mm. like sawdust deli meat and grilled cheese sandwiches. Oh, fuck. So it was like 69 cents for a little package of them, of mm-hmm. meat. And so we would eat that, which probably wasn't the healthiest thing, but that's all we had and drank mountain, like one Mountain Dew. Like we had rationed our junk food for, <laughs> you guys never had the, um, you never had the government baloney? No. Dude, don't knock it. I mean, if if you got a poor friend, mm-hmm. you know, invite them over, but tell them to bring that government bologna and that government cheese. Make a grilled cheese sandwich out of that. Oh my god, it's 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 heaven in a bun. Like it's it's better than In and Out. Better than what do you guys have? It's better than Whataburger. Better than anything you can ever have. Okay. A thick slice of bologna and some government cheese. Okay. On some Texas toast. Okay. Thank you. Thank me later. Oh, I will. And <laughs> so I I started at the telephone company because they had a position open up and I got hired on for a temp agency in 1999. And by 2000, I was one of the more specialized people in that workforce. Like I knew every piece of the comedy or not comedy, but the tech support. And mm-hmm. so I became like an engineer. And so I, by 2003, I was, I was feeling I was indispensable and I got let go. They let, they found oh, a, they found a reason to let me go. And it's one of those things where you learn, um, I'm in a right to work state. So I know in California, that's a little different, but in Texas, mm-hmm. we have a thing called right to work where as long as they have a real reason, you know, they can find a legitimate reason to fire you. They can fire you without, you know, you can claim unemployment and all that stuff, but they can just terminate you for any, you know, reason. Say, you know, you didn't document properly, so we're going to have to let you go. Fuck. And so I was kind of mentally scarred. And so I started working for the self, uh, Nextel at the time. And Nextel, I was making okay money, but. It was never going to, I was just never going to, I don't have a college degree, so it was never going to be as good as what I had. Like, I was never going to have benefits here. I was temp, I was going to be temp for life. And so I started to sit there and think, what do I really want to do? And while I was at the telephone company, you know, one of the things I was on my bucket list to try was stand-up comedy. So I printed out, back in the day, we didn't have... Google and everything. There was just, I found a document online for like 40 pages of what to do for stand up. And I had, I had leafed through it. I printed it out and I had leafed through it over and over. And so in 2003, I committed myself. I was like, we're going to try. Cause 
at that point, I was like, what do you want to do? You want to go back to school? And I couldn't fathom myself going back to school and finding anything I enjoy. I was like, that's just Mm -hmm. stressful. And so the second thought was, what do you want to do? And that's what I, I focused on. I got a couple of books. I got the Comedy Bible by Judy Carter. And I went through those. And I got stuck on start your first open mic. It's like they have a workbook and it's like, you know, now do your first open mic. Well, at that point, I got a new job where I was working nights. And oh, so, shit. And so, yeah, I was working 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. I would upload commercials for for TV stations. So I would... After the commercials were edited and made sure everything was correct, we'd ship them out either by satellite or by FedEx delivery to the TV and radio stations that they mm-hmm. belonged to. And so I did that for three years. And in 2006, I got a DWI. And then shortly after my DWI, I lost my job. We really have, dude, we really have the same, the same lifestyle, right? We really have the same path, dude. (laughs) And so I lost that. I lost my job. I lost my apartment that I was living with my roommates. Like I haven't spoken to my best friend since that all went down. So I've like, I don't know if I don't know anything, everything. I just lost everything. And so Mm -hmm. I had to move back home, had to basically sleep on my mom's couch and change clothes in her garage. I did that for like six or eight months while I was in and out of jobs. And then I got this job that I'm working at now in 2008 as a temp. Worked there for four years as a temp. My mom had her house, I guess, lost the house, you know, by some sort of, I guess, oversight on the loan agreement that she wasn't, she couldn't afford and so I had to move. She moved into an apartment and I moved into my own apartment that I'm in still to this day. Mm-hmm. So I've lived here about 10 years in what's called Irving, which is kind of a middle, middle ground between Dallas and Fort Worth. Because my job was at the time was five minutes away. It's, we moved to Richardson in about two or three years ago. And so, but now we work from home. But at 2006 with a DWI and everything, I decided... And my job, I was like, well, I'm going to work days now. So now I have to try stand-up. And so I made a plan. I went. I was going to do it in August. And then one of my friends was in a motorcycle accident. So I went and visited him in the hospital instead of doing it that. And then when I did go up, it was a week after. Like they said, you know, don't go up this week. Watch the show. Because it's a. Cl- I, went, I started a clean comedy club, which can sound intimidating. But it's actually probably one of the best things I learned is it's easier to transition and be clean and go dirty than it is to start dirty and then try to d- figure out how to be clean. There, if really? There, if there's one advice I could give you is just try to try to start clean because you could you always know how to go dirty. But yeah, when you're dirty, it's hard to break those habits and go clean. And so it kind of expands you and makes you write better because you have to try to find, okay, what's a universal word for fuck in this situation? Or, you know, instead of saying shit, what can I say about this? And so it just kind of, it just kind of, I would say, just expands your vocabulary just ever so slightly so that you don't always go for, and I said, you know, F the, you know, fuck this. And, you know, that's not, that's because some people, it just becomes a crutch is that they, they don't realize that it's not, it's how it's, it's the word they're saying, not the joke they're writing that's getting the laugh. And so I had to sit there. I went for the first year of my comedy. I had a breathalyzer in my car and I had to navigate that while being at bars and stuff like that to, to try and do stand up. I I struggled. It was it's it's been one of the the hardest and most I would say beneficial things that's been done in my life because it's I will say comedy does make you again make peace with who you are and your flaws. So whatever whatever you don't like about yourself, because you you just got to write about it, and then you just kind of in yeah. that in that writing and joking about it, you make peace with the fact that maybe. Maybe you're not the guy that women are attracted to, no matter how much you you try to flirt and stuff, that you're just never going to be that guy. 
You're never going to be <laughs> the guy that all the girls are impressed by. But you can make a whole room laugh and and you can find somebody, you can find one girl that really appreciates it versus the groupie. The masses. Yeah, the yeah. groupie. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I think comedy also, a, a lot like podcasting, it's like, it's just so therapeutic. And we, you said this at the top of the show about just it being like real, you know, having, maybe you said it off, off recording, but it's just like being able to say what people are thinking in a way that they can convey and isn't the most offensive, but is a little offensive at the same time, you know, because it's shit that people need to hear at the end of the day, whether it's your insecurities or just like if you're talking about society as a whole. Mm -hmm. So what would you tell people that may be afraid that they're, that they're going down a path of mediocrity? What, what would be your, like, what would be your suggestion to kind of, I guess, because mediocrity could also just be, like you said, with chefing, a routine is just doing mm -hmm. is just the methodical. Is it just to to shake things up like you going to Hawaii or I think um, my advice would be just stop. Don't be afraid to look stupid. Mm -hmm. I think people are scared to look stupid. So it, it in turn, it kind of like it forces them not, they think they shouldn't try to do something because they'll be mediocre at it. But without reason, like you won't be happy if you don't try and like take the cookie out of the cookie jar, you know, like you got to climb up on, you got to climb up on the, um, on the counter, you know, open the jar and take the cookie. But if like, if all you're doing is thinking about it and just staring up at the jar, I mean, to me, that's mediocrity. Like, I can live with looking stupid and having people think I look stupid or I'm crazy, but I can't live, be able to live with myself knowing that, fuck, maybe I, maybe I could have done this. Like maybe you should have done that. And everybody has their regrets, but I don't want to be a person who regrets not trying. That's a fantastic, fantastic way of do, of trying it is that you don't want to be known as the guy that stayed on the cliff when everybody else jumped off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, dude, if you go base jumping, you're gonna, you're not getting your deposit back. So you might as well jump out. Awesome. I thank you for doing this, Wally. Where can people find you on social media if they wanted to check out you or your podcast or upcoming comedy? Comedy coming soon, but um, you can find me on Instagram at off the stoop podcast. Um, it's spelled how it sounds. You can you can follow my personal at Wally Hippolito. That's Wally with a Y, not fucking not that fucking robot. Um, and uh, my last name is H I P O L I T O, and Wally Hippolito for my Twitter. And um, yeah, man. I mean, my DMs are always open. I'm always open to talking to meeting new people. And I'm actually about to hit the fiftieth episode of my podcast next week. I don't know when this episode of your show comes out, but you know, next week I'll hit 50 and then I'm going to take a break and kind of uh, reevaluate the show a little bit and reevaluate some things. But I'm excited, man. It's some big things to come. Well, congratulations on the milestone. And I hope, like I say, you I know whatever you decide will probably make can only make the show better and more more. Maybe I don't know if you'll go more comedy centric since that's what you'll be going to or if you want to keep it something that kind of opens your brain channel to something outside of comedy so that you can kind of almost pull in real life and maybe even I guess because a couple of times I've kind of gone through some bits in my head like while we're talking like oh you know like something being mm -hmm. said just all of a sudden inspires me to think about another way of doing a joke or writing a new joke yeah man I didn't want this to be a comedy podcast at the front like I can it can be comedy on it but I didn't want it to be just about comedy again. I talk about comedy so much. Like I, I feel <laughs> I feel like my audience would be like, we've heard this comedy discussion already. And I feel like there's only so many things in comedy wise you can talk about. Like how did how did you make it? Well, I I went up to open mics and I, you know, I just had an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think everybody there's a blueprint. There's kind of a blueprint. It's very fluid because it just can anybody can have at any point in any time can have an opportunity drop in their lap and it's 
it's it's very it's very fun, but it's also very it's almost like lottery esque. Is yeah, it, you have to enjoy filling out those little I, lottery cards every mm-hmm. week because you know you never know when your number's called. For sure, for sure, I gotta have you on, man. And um, no, my the show is basically whatever I want to talk about that week, right? It could be trending topics, and you know I can have people from different areas. Like I've had comedians on, I've had singers and rappers and I've had political figures. I've had psychologists on and it just really, the show is really just about my interests. I kind of take from Joe Rogan a little bit where Mm -hmm. he doesn't have the same type of people. He knows a lot of influential people and he talks to who he wants to talk to at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. So like, it's just him having a conversation with friends and, you know, maybe having, maybe getting some new friends onto this show. So like, I am like thinking, I I was thinking about the comedy thing for a little bit, but like you said, it's just like, there's only so many times you can ask somebody about like where they started, you know, it's like, eventually I'm going to get fucking bored of myself if I keep doing that. Yeah. Well, I thank you for doing this, Wally. We'll, we'll talk again soon. Like I said, we're definitely, definitely excited. I hope your opportunity in your 50th episode are killer. I know they will be. And then again, congratulations on your re-entry into comedy here in the near future. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it, man. Have a good one. So that was Wally. I really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed his take on mediocrity. His take was knowing you can do better, but not giving the effort, which I think is a very fascinating fear to that did you give it your all? Did you really did you really put forth a, an honorable effort on things? It's very interesting that he or his life has taken him from basketball to chefing in Hawaii, back to San Francisco, and then now into the comedy and social media arena. It's always interesting to see where people's passions lie and to see where they're going differently. I wish Wally the best. 50 episodes is a milestone achievement. We're, we'll hopefully get there. We're at episode 40, so we're not too far behind. We're doing a regular regular stream here. I thank you for listening to this podcast. I've been doing live recordings this week. I actually did one yesterday, and I have one here in a few in a couple hours. It was a great time. I was surprised at how well it turned out. Because you just never know with your first time, like you expect all these little hangups and hiccups. And thanks to musician Oscar Nash, who will be a future guest, as he was one of my interviews yesterday. I got six interviews. They're going to be slightly condensed episodes. So because they were live and I wanted to try to get as many artists and creators in in that space as quickly as I possibly could, there will probably be around 20 to 30 minute long episodes. Um, but we got six yesterday. Hopefully we'll get five or six more today. And we'll, we'll have a great time. Thanks to Oscar for the PA system so that people walking around could actually listen to the podcast as we recorded it. I got an author. I got a painter too. Um, I got a comedian. It was a really fun, fun day. And then Oscar took over and just blew us away with his awesome music. So if you are... You know, check out arts and the usual art specs on Facebook and all social media just to see when their next show is because I'd love to do another live podcast from one of their art shows. That being said, I also did some comedy. I did a show at the Backdoor Comedy Club as when I'm not usually working. That's where I'll be. Had a great set. Then... We transitioned. Uh, my friend Justin Foster was in town, and he headlined the Addison Improv on a late Saturday show. Got a standing ovation, which is always nice to see, and something I aspire to as a comedian to possibly get at some point in my career. We all had a great show. It was a great lineup of Justin Foster and friends. Justin closed out the show with an amazing set. So thank you to the Addison Improv. I got more shows coming in June. I'll be featuring at Hyenas in Fort Worth. More to come on that as we get closer. And if you like the show, uh, hit the follow button. 
Leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And I will now go get ready to head to the Pedicalus Brewery to take day two of live podcasting. I definitely know what kind of PA system I need to get. And so I can't wait. And it's been a great week. And more to come. Thank you for listening to the Sum of All Fears podcast. And now some thank yous for the folks that make this show possible. Thanks to Barry Whitewater for my art and graphics. You can follow him on Instagram at bwhiteh2o. Get it? H2O like water. You can also follow him on Facebook Music. A huge thank you to Gunnar Olson for the wonderful music provided for this podcast. You can follow him on Instagram at gunbuns, that's G-U-N-B-U-N-S, as well as his website, gunnarolson.net. Check out some of the samples that he has recorded. They're amazing. He's an amazing percussionist. If you want to follow the show, we've got a Facebook group, Some of All Fears. Instagram, Twitter, you can find us at Some Fear Fans. If you have some feedback for the show, email me at somefearfans, S-O-M-E-F-E-A-R-F-A-N-S at gmail.com. I'll be happy to, to take those into consideration. Also, if you'd like to be a guest, email me at somefearfans at gmail.com. We can try to iron out some details and get that settled in. You know, give us some feedback if on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review. It makes the show bigger, and it's not going anywhere. I'm going to record as many shows as I possibly can. If you want to follow me on social media, I am at Ryan Perio. It's R-Y-A-N-P-E-R-R-I-O on all social media platforms. You can follow me there, and you can check me out at ryanperio.com, my website. I'll try to list upcoming shows there as well. It's been kind of spotty because as soon as I set it up, that's when the pandemic happened. And everything's kind of just in a in a holding pattern. Thanks again for listening to the Sum of All Fears podcast. Next week, we'll have another guest with another fear. Thanks for listening. <laughs>